Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our watch-through of The Magicians, looking at Season 2, Episode 10, The Girl Who Told Time. Why don't you start us off with a recap? So, the episode opens with a memory of Julia practicing magic with Dean Fogg in a prior time loop. Back in the timeline 40, Fogg lets Julia out of captivity, telling her that he's confident she will figure out how to save herself. Still trying to kill Reynard, Katie and Penny use his new job with the library to look for god-killing books, which the library says it doesn't have. But when they meet a hedge named Harriet, who runs a website to secretly give hedges access to magic, she says the library lied and puts a hex on a returned book. The hex unsuccessfully tries to force a librarian to open the poison room, which houses restricted books. Back in Fillory, Elliot is stressed about his upcoming wedding to King Idri. Quentin is trying to drink his sorrows over Alice away, and Margot is having none of it. She sends Q to Earth to get Josh to cater the wedding, and he tries Josh's magical baking, which lets him see into the underworld where Julia's shade is trapped. Q and Julia then search for a way to find her shade using the Tessalaflexion spell that lets Q talk to Alice from Timeline 23, who reveals that they must find an Ancient One to get to the Underworld. Back in Fillory, Josh discovers a Foo Fighter plan for another assassination attempt on Elliot's life. Margot finally comes clean to Fen about the fairy deal because they're both seeing them lurking everywhere. But since they want out of the deal, a fairy comes and steals Fen away. Then the episode ends with Julia discovering what an ancient one is. A dragon. <gasps> so much. <laughs> so let's, let's get into it. What are your magic moments from this episode? Yeah, so one of our magic moments is just how cool it is that we finally get to find out what Julia's magical discipline was mm. and like see her in school even if it's just a little scene yeah she's a knowledge student and she read ahead into year two books when she was in year one and mm -hmm. you know she understood as dean fogg said she understood the theory behind the spell and then reshaped it which is just so cool i'm like ah i want to be a knowledge student too absolutely yeah, it's, it's the Ravenclaw dream. <laughs> Your living quarters to be above the library mm -hmm. or whatnot. Yeah, and like her not even having been to break bells in this timeline 40. She's like, well, what about a Tesla function? She has gained a lot of knowledge in the process of working with Marina and then Richard and all the resources that he had. And it's like, well, now she's one of, if not the most competent one mm -hmm. of the whole group in, in her knowledge and ability, which is, yeah, just really cool. Absolutely. Also, I mean, obviously we have to mention Quentin just moping and drinking <laughs> with his feet up on Margot's throw. And I'm like, oh, you, you don't put your feet up on Margot's throw. That's, mm -hmm. that's not going to go well. <laughs> yeah, I love how he forgets Medley's name and he like feels bad about it, but he also is drunk enough to do it. Like he doesn't feel mm -hmm. bad enough not to forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very Quentin moment yeah. of him being self-centered, but also feeling bad about being self-centered. <laughs> 
Totally. And, you know, we find out it's been three months mm-hmm. of of all of this. And when Quentin says that he's going to leave, Elliot saying, you can't go back to Earth. You have far much to do here. But he does, you know. And so yet again, he's not really being a monarch of Fillory totally. uh, like the others are. But also, you know, it's it's just a really, really sad moment after the Tesla faction ends and Alice disappears and he's just like so sad. You know, he's just crying about it, which is, yeah, it's it's sad. I understand why he's acting the way he is, but would be very frustrating to the others. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> who've been carrying this whole kingdom on their shoulders alone Mm -hmm. for i mean if this has just been three months like how many months has it been you know there was a period of time that elliot was there alone completely and then after that it's elliot and Margot, and you know yes there was a whole war like Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so it's probably been a year more Mm -hmm. uh and yeah they've been doing it alone yeah (laughs) so (sighs) and then Penny. Oh, Penny. And <laughs> there's so many great moments with Penny in this episode, including Zelda being so happy to welcome Penny to yes. the order. She almost tries to hug him. Such a great scene. I'm like, oh, I love it. <laughs> Who has ever reacted to Penny that way? Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, an important point that Penny is so used to being attacked by people that <laughs> when Harriet starts signing, he automatically thinks that she's doing magic to attack him and mm-hmm. ducks. So it's just like, oh, Penny. Oh, Penny. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, two other just little quotes by him. When he's talking to Katie, he's like, haven't you ever noticed fog isn't that helpful? <laughs> <laughs> Which is just, you know, it's a great comment, but particularly from him, because I think fuck has been least helpful to him than any of the others. And so, yeah, I signed this million year contract because I couldn't even get help to learn magic Mm -hmm. again. (laughs) And then, of course, his statement that rapist monsters are a universal problem. Accurate. 100% accurate. Yeah. And uh, it also shows why Penny's better than Quentin, because mm-hmm. Quentin was so focused on his own issues and never took Reynard seriously. Still is not taking Reynard seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Quentin, do you only want to risk your life to deal with a villain that's only coming after you specifically? Mm-hmm. And you just don't care if it's coming after some of your friends? (laughs) Your oldest friend? (laughs) (laughs) You know. But, yes. And then the last thing is just Josh's baked goods. Mm. Is just so Josh from the books. He would definitely do this sort of thing. Even though Josh from the books wasn't an herbalist. Mm -hmm. He was part of the Physical Kids cottage. But... Yeah, I think that's really fun, too, that we get to see someone who has natural magic. And and as the story progresses, instead of it just being everybody predominantly doing physical magic, now we have a knowledge student. And, of course, we've always had Penny a psychic student, but now we have a natural magic student, too. So, yeah, it's just it's fun to get little snippets of other magic. Absolutely. Yeah, and such a cool way of making magic a 
joyful part of your life through food because mm-hmm. food is something that we all engage with all the time and of course there's going to be magic involved there too and i think that josh is a really interesting character to care so much about that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what about you yeah i had some other just great lines and mm-hmm. and things that i saw some amazing back and forth between elliot and marco and elliot and everyone oh, as usual always yeah uh, at one point when he's upset with one of his servants, he just says, you're banished forever. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just not angry, angrily, yeah. just says Dismissed. that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I also laughed very, very hard when they mentioned that Nate Silver is a magician <sighs> in this world with a polling spell. Mm-hmm. It's a very 2016 joke, which is when this was produced. Uh, uh, for those who don't know Nate Silver, he runs 538 which is a really well-respected polling website. And prior to the 2016 election, the thing that everyone was paying attention to, especially because it was saying that Donald Trump had very little chance of winning. (laughs) And, you know, this is prior to polling as a whole being seen as being pretty problematic and uh, not entirely... Accurate. Accurate, yeah, and reliable. (laughs) So very much coming from a time when Nate Silver was seen as someone... Very respected. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, to call him a magician is just a a great line. (laughs) And then when Elliot finds out about the Foo Fighters plot and how the dishwasher was involved with it, and he says that he should be executed, Marco says that it means so much to her that he wants to execute him. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful line. And of course, delivered impeccably. So good. I also really enjoyed the line of uh fen thinking of websites as cities made of pixels mm-hmm. <laughs> okay and then for myself just seeing the use of pneumatic tubes in the library is so cool mm-hmm. like pneumatic tubes i think as a concept is, is very very cool i don't entirely understand how they were utilized in society <laughs> but i think they look cool because i Probably in part because I don't understand that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's always just placed in sort of fantastical environments now Mm -hmm, when we see it because we don't use that anymore. Mm -hmm, Yeah. (laughs) As far as I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there probably are still places that do use it, but uh, I don't know of any of them. Yeah. But let's head into our next section on setting in society. What did you bring? Yeah, so one is... I'm kind of iffy about in terms of, like, criticizing the show because Elliot is planning this wedding and he's stressed and everybody, almost everybody is going to be stressed while planning their wedding. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they say he's groomzilla and he's, like, throwing things and, like, I just don't know if that's getting to, like, stereotyping Mm. where it's, like, when gay men get married, they're going to be obsessive brides, you know? Yeah. Uh, and not, not to say that Elliot doesn't really care about presentation of things and the drinks that he made and the parties he would throw at the physical kid's cottage and things like that. So I don't think it's entirely out of his character. And not only that, but he's dealing with the politics of it too. Yeah. It's not just, oh, people can sit at tables, but where people are sitting matters Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of all of the complex political things that he probably doesn't even still have a very good grasp on. But 
that being said, I'm still kind of like, well, yeah, I, I don't know if it's just like, oh, let's make fun of this. And yeah, if it's kind of stereotyping in a just very basic way that's not nuanced. Agreed. Yeah, I think that the show fell short in trying to make this about how it's more important than just an event because he's so focused on the event details that do seem unimportant mm -hmm. that even when that's framed in a way of, well, a wedding is one of the best ways of getting your polling numbers up, essentially, mm -hmm. that framing doesn't do enough to take away from what we actually see, which is him obsessing over small details like where people are sitting and, and what people are eating and what he's wearing and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, it did give a little bit where he obviously responds to Josh's cooking with delight, mm -hmm. but he's like, this isn't fillery enough. So you, you can see that he's trying to melt things and not... He's he's trying to be accessible <laughs> to the people and, and not just, like overlording his earthness mm -hmm. but yeah they could have even had just like a little montage of just one council member tells him something and then another one and then another one about different details of like how it can be problematic for the Lorians or you know whatever it is yeah. so that we could understand a better idea of the stress that he was under agreed Especially when I, like, I feel like they normally do a good job with his character and making him very complex and nuanced and not just a stereotyped gay man, but here I feel like they didn't do that well enough. Agreed. The other thing I was thinking about in this episode is Fen... I, I know where Fen's character goes. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert, she's not dead with the fairies currently. There are definitely a lot of things that I like about Fen's character. And so when you see Fen come in, you know, after already having watched it, you're like, oh, yay, it's Fen. But this closer watch through, I feel like I'm I'm pretty disappointed in her character currently. Hmm. Uh, not only her having kept this information to herself about Ellie could also have a husband hmm. and... Not that it needs to be something that she's like, yeah, this is great. I mean, she could express her fears regarding it if, if yeah. that was the case or whatnot. Just so that he doesn't feel like this is going to be the rest of his life forever. Maybe there's some other option for him and that wouldn't feel as crushing, you know, as mm -hmm. he's struggling so much to adjust to being the king of this place and living here for the rest of his life. And then also... Now, when he brings this up, you seem like you're accepting this way too easily. Like, I'm about to get married to someone else, too, you know. And she is just says that her mission is to protect our growing family. And your marriage to Idri means a stronger kingdom. Which, yeah, I think is just really disappointing considering that she was a Foo Fighter. Mm. And that Baylor was... First, like, calling her out for it when he first came into the story. We had this plan, like, you are at the place where you could actually enact this, get rid of these Earth people, and a Falorian person could take the throne, you know? And now, just because she's pregnant, her entire belief system has gone out the window, mm. which... 
I think does happen. So I don't think it's unrealistic. I think in society, it's a problematic idea that your family is the most important thing in the world and should be your only priority. Because she used to be passionate about dismantling an oppressive colonization. And now all she cares about is her baby personally having a good, safe, privileged life. Mm -hmm. And the struggling Florian peasants and their children be damned, you know? And it's just like... Yeah, it's very disappointing, but it's also something that we do see a lot of in the world. Or it's like, oh, well, this is the most important thing. My family and I'm going to buy this new baby I've created. <laughs> Clothing that was made by maybe children, slave labor. Doesn't matter about those children. I'm going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into just this one person because they're in my nuclear family now, you know? And so, yeah, it does happen, but it's it's disappointing for me. Yeah, for there to have... She have been a passionate character, but a passionate character that we don't really ever get to see. Mm-hmm. At least up until now. Yeah, I can see that for sure. And it, in many ways, for me, feels like the show has sidelined her in a lot of those ways where you're absolutely right those conversations that she could and should have had with Elliot about the possibility of having a husband as well but the show wanted that reveal to wait until he was having the conversation with Idri right of course and so there's though there's that and i think that kind of thing happens a lot to Fen as she is now no longer the main foil to Elliot, the main person that he's interacting with, because everyone's in Fillory, or lots of people are in Fillory. Mm -hmm. And so those early episodes where we saw some really great character work with Fenn, there was a lot of room for her because she was the person interacting with Elliot the most and helping to challenge him in really important ways. But now that the show is more interested in what's going on with the characters and the plot beats, Fenn is, in many ways, herself kind of turned into just the pregnant mom. And that, I think, is is really unfortunate because, yeah, you're absolutely right. We've lost what had made Fen such a compelling character in the beginning of the season because, yeah, she's kind of brought into this one role who then even the conflict is about this issue with the fairies, which she was not the instigator of. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think that that is unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it's the type of thing that happens a lot in shows where Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, we have to have some character be pregnant and deal with that as a plot point. And so then, like, their whole life only revolves around that. But those characters often don't have a backstory where they were really passionate and they were kind of like a radical secret activist, you know? And so having that be a part of her, it just, yeah, it it makes her character choices be about giving all of that up and not caring about equality for Florians anymore. Yeah. And just caring about the privilege of her own little family. Totally. Which, yeah, again, it happens. So it's not unrealistic. Totally. What about you? What are your setting in society points? Well, one small one I had was right there in the beginning of the episode where Quentin is drowning his sorrows, you know, on on his throne, (laughs) drinking a lot. And when Margot comes up to confront him about it, she says it's been three months. And he says, well, it's only been a couple of days on Earth. And even though that's kind of a throwaway line, it does, I think, interestingly connect to his depression 
in like making this magical aspect of two different timelines, two different time frames running at different speeds, increasing the extent to which his life and the time that he spends seems meaningless mm-hmm. because he spent three months despairing, drinking, etc. But there's a part of him that's probably communicating, well, this doesn't matter because it's only been a couple of days. And I know for myself, sometimes when I've been in despairing kind of moods, it feels like nothing matters. And so I can only, I just think it's interesting to see how this magical difference between how time flows can further impact those kinds of depressive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I also want to talk a lot about the library. Yes, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the big conflicts that we're starting to see here is this idea of what kind of information should be available to to who. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's some very good logic behind the idea that some information maybe shouldn't be available to anyone and everyone. Yeah, destroy whole planets and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I don't love the fact that there is information available on the internet that, you know, of how to make a bomb Mm. and how to make a plastic gun or 3D printed gun that then can go through metal detectors. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. these things are, I think scary that they're out there and available for everyone in the same way that I wouldn't want anyone to be able to have the knowledge and ability, if they're a magician in this case, to construct a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of massive uh, amount of devastation is, yeah, I think should be controlled the same way that any weapon should. And in this world, like we've discussed in the past, knowledge is a kind of weapon, Um, right? The armory of Fillory was a library as well. So, like, I I think that If you're in a world where for magicians, the more knowledge they have, the more powerful they are, the thought of knowledge as a weapon is is appropriate. Mm -hmm. But when, when you try to break down beyond the fantastic elements of a show like this, I think that there is some really important parallels to how knowledge is produced, reproduced, maintained, and provided to people in our own society. One thing that we talk about a lot in history is capital T, capital A, the archive, (laughs) right? So this is an idea of what are the sources that we have available to us? Not in like a specific archive, but just that like exist in the archive altogether in the world. Uh, What sources do we have available? And when we look back at historical sources in particular, those sources reproduce and are reproduced by social inequalities. One of the most glaring examples is just who had the ability to read and write throughout most of history, Mm -hmm. a very small minority of people. And so when we look at the writings of people in the past, we already have a minuscule population of people who are able to express what they were doing in writing. And most people were not able to leave traces, sources that explained their perspective, their visions, you know, what they saw in history. Yeah, it's like the the line that people say history is written by the victor, right. the, the one who wins the war or whatnot. But it's like history is written by the aristocrats, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, not now, but 
I mean, to some degree, maybe still, but less so than it, it was. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that this this itself has evolved over time as as literacy, printing, press, and like technologies have improved to make it so that more and more people do have access to the creation of these kinds of sources. But the archive is not only about the creation of the sources, but it's also about the maintenance, organizing, and accessibility of those sources. So where are sources that were written a hundred years ago being kept? You know, more than you know, the majority of Americans in 1923 had at least some education, which might make mean that they could write some sources. But who would, you know, were there any historical archives out there who wanted to keep the source, the writings, for example, of gay men in that time period, uh, where those would not only have been written and kept, but also kept for a hundred years afterwards mm -hmm. in an environment where they would still be accessible in the modern day. Or were those writings destroyed? Exactly. Were those writings even writings that people wanted to have out there? Would they destroy, be, be destroyed from, by the authors or their, the people it was delivered mm -hmm. to because they were afraid of being persecuted because of it? Yeah. Yeah. Were they destroyed afterwards because people saw this as evil or as deviant or whatever it might be? And of course, it's going to vary per culture as mm -hmm. well. Like the birth of the novel, right? A female Japanese writer. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Europe, you probably have to wait for a while to have stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but let's spread European culture everywhere. It's the height <laughs> of civilization. So, yeah, I, I just I think that it's. A, you know, I'm obviously very interested in these ideas of accessibility. And when Harriet calls out the library for having trouble with accessibility, I think that this is, yeah, a, a double meaning of obviously mm -hmm. Harriet is deaf. And so accessibility means something in that component, but also it means who has access to the information in the library. And who doesn't have access to that information? Mm -hmm. Who is able to actually go to the library? Just travelers or people who have buttons or whatever else it might be that can get them there. Very limited amount of magicians. Then do you need maybe a library card? You need to abide by rules that maybe are not clearly set out. You know, there's all sorts of ways that that information is kept from people. And that in many ways is the mission of the library to control access to this information. And while I think that libraries in our own society are really admirable because they are about spreading information, making making information accessible, I don't know if the library that we've seen so far in the show uh, has that as central to their mission. Even libraries now, a lot of times, like public libraries are one thing, but there are libraries on university campuses Absolutely. that have more specialized books and, you know, all of that. And so they only open them up to researchers who yeah. are people who are going to be in a doctorate program mm -hmm. and or like JSTOR mm -hmm. articles. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that all of that is uh, just really interesting elements as, as the library is becoming more and more central figure in this world and a central component of some of the plots that we're seeing. I'm going to be keeping a real eye on, yeah, what information is available, what is not, who it's available to, and what 
Harriet's and other Hedge's goals are in spreading that information. Mm -hmm. Um, Because some of the most amazing theoretical writings I've seen from historians in books and and articles in the last few years have been ones that have directly confronted the idea of the archive and said, okay, we need to queer the archive. We need to challenge the archive. We need to create our own rebel archives because the archive as it exists is not only, yeah, again, created through marginalization, but it furthers that marginalization by trying to put forward only a limited amount of views as the only views that are there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that I think most shows would grapple with. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's just another thing I really appreciate about this show and its world building. Yeah. Definitely. And so I kind of had like a talking about this, but with like the themes and schemes. Perfect. Let's head into that. Oh, okay. So I I was kind of thinking about the library as an expanding of the gatekeeping that we saw from break bills Mm -hmm. and like the inequalities. We've talked about that a lot with the hedge witches and especially with Julia and Marina as the prime examples of how they were excluded from this elite institution, yeah. how all of these different hedge communities are like just trying to access magic, and how condescending and elitist people at Breakbills could be towards hedge communities. And now you have, I mean, you have Penny and Katie getting in a little bit of an argument over it, and I get both sides, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, do you want every hedge witch with a grudge to be able to get their hands on a nuclear bomb, you know? Yeah. And she's also like me because she's a hedge witch. And he's like, no, not like you. <laughs> and so I think that Penny is not elitist in the same way as Quentin and Elliot were and Margot and stuff. But he also sees like... No, information that could destroy worlds, yeah, we probably should protect that. Mm-hmm. And yet, you still have to ask the question, well, who gets to decide? Who accesses it? Of course. And so I think Breakbills is the small, like, Earth example of this. And then the library is the universe's example mm. of it. Because the library of the Netherlands is of the Netherlands, which all of those things thousands or or millions we don't really know of fountains stretching in every direction like these are all these different worlds and they have they control the information for all of it Mm -hmm. which is yeah just really really intense and i think we also have a kind of theme coming in where it's throwing (laughs) shade at institutions we've had that with break bills already and now there's a kind of ominous feeling about what's going on with the library, that they were flat out lying about the information that they had to Katie. Mm-hmm. They have a kill switch, which is just intense. I mean, I guess if you if you have to do it yourself, there's an interesting element there. But, you know, it gives an ominous feel of, like, why is this necessary? And then there's just something called the poison room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it is definitely setting up some layers of untrust with this huge institution that's also called the Order, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I think that that that, that theme they will run with as, as... 
the seasons continue. Absolutely. And that and that w- word choice, I think, is so specific too. the order, mm-hmm. because, you know, that brings to mind ideas of order versus disorder. And mm-hmm. order looks like what, according to who. If you're out of order, then what happens exactly. to you? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. But what about you? What were your other themes and schemes? Yeah. One I had was just that we start to see deals coming due. We've seen mm-hmm. the theme of people making choices, making deals in past episodes. And yeah, we're starting to see those being called in at this point mm-hmm. where Penny is welcomed to the order. Well, Penny is starting <laughs> to serve as a librarian and having to spend his time doing that. And Finn is seeing the fairies and taken by the fairies ultimately. So the consequences of these actions that happened in previous episodes are starting to further complicate the narrative, uh, I think, in, in really interesting ways. Um, and it's making me interested in how we are going to see the season as a whole because so much has changed throughout this season and even just the last six episodes since Martin was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just a lot has happened and a, so much of that has happened I know, through, it's like, wait, was that the same season? I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so much has happened just through these choices that people are making, which I, I appreciate it. You know, it's, it's this idea of narrative agency where the, mm-hmm. the characters are making choices that further the plot and the world is responding to those choices in ways that are impactful. So I, I see that as something that is really, really great to to just have in, yeah, you know, two-thirds of the way through the season, some of these longer plot threads being pulled in interesting ways. Totally. Yeah, I, I find it very irksome when stories don't have consequences mm-hmm. for people's actions. It's like, oh, they made this really big or bad or whatever decision and then it's like dealt with for an episode and then it's like start noon the next episode as if that didn't happen okay well there's no continuity here and it's frustrating for me exactly (laughs) and yeah i mean this is going all the way back to the river watcher exactly episode two i think one two i think it might be one Yeah. yeah telling penny Actions have consequences, and you, especially with the position you'll hold soon, need to learn that. And obviously, he was alluding to him becoming a librarian, Mm -hmm. and probably in a very strange way, being able to see consequences and interactions more the more he is in that role, uh, because you can stand outside of time in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think that that is definitely an important theme for this season. Because, uh, yeah, the River Watcher and the Witch in the Woods, you know, at the very beginning of the season, they highlight and frame the season in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're agents too. We have our own motivations. We're not just whimsical figures that you're going to cross. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and she was like, no, I'm not going to give you your blood back. We made this deal. Exactly. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, it was, it was setting up deals as well. Totally. But another theme that I saw coming out in this episode was an idea of a person being broken. Hmm. Two characters describe themselves as broken. Both Alice 23, the Alice that we see through the Tesla affection, talks about how she was hurt and broken through what she experienced and especially through Quentin's death. Mm -hmm. And Julia calls herself broken for not having her shade and even knowing 
how she would want to respond, but not being able to respond that way naturally. Yeah, I think she said, I know that I wouldn't have done that if I was still me. Exactly. Some paraphrase of that, yeah. Yeah. And one could probably argue that Quentin, in the beginning of the episode, is broken in a way. If oh, he's... I mean, he's been broken, but... <laughs> it's true. And he's, yeah, I mean, he's seen he's, himself I mean, that and way he's, in the past. He said that sometimes my brain breaks, yeah, right? He's, exactly. He's used that word. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting way of looking at these characters and these characters looking at themselves as being broken, particularly considering some information about Quentin that we haven't found out yet. And... It's interesting to see, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Quentin's desire to want to be the hero and feel like he has a narrative and especially to save women. Mm-hmm. But here we really see him being influenced by the broken women in his life and wanting to fix those things for those people. Yeah, I just find that fascinating for someone who sees himself as broken to want to help people who who call themselves broken as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know where they're, if that's something that they're, they're being intentional about, but for two characters to both call themselves broken in one episode just mm-hmm. feels intentional to me. So yeah, it's just something I'm, another thing I'm going to try to keep track of uh, moving forward and see where it goes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But let's head into our next segment from another point of view. Whose perspective did you want to discuss this week? So Elliot. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Part of the reason is because of what you mentioned before, him going back on his decision not to execute people Mm. and trying to understand why, because I think it was a really important decision he made a few episodes ago. So why is he not sticking with that now? Mm -hmm. I think some of that just has to do with the immense stress and pressure that he's under uh, even at the earlier on in the, in the episode, when he's talking with Baylor, he's saying, I stopped a famine. I personally stopped a war. Why do the people still hate me? He's accomplished a lot in his year or whatever as king. Absolutely. Uh, especially compared to Quentin. <laughs> yeah, he's done a lot. He's made it so that people didn't starve to death Mm -hmm. and he's gotten them out of a war that he didn't get them into you know and just the the frustration and the the exasperation with that it's like people are still discontent even after i'm doing everything i possibly can to help them and this is not where i want to be and the whole reason i'm even here as king was because i agreed to it to save my friends, to save myself mm-hmm. from myself, to save this world and magic everywhere because Martin was destroying it. And so just the disappointment he must feel at yeah. that and in the midst of that being like, okay, my wife is pregnant, which is nothing about that situation is what I wanted, but still concerned about her as... She, there seems like there's something off about her. So mm-hmm. he asks Margot to go and talk with her because, like, he's still not really comfortable talking with her. You can you can see it. You can feel it in the his scenes. Like, he doesn't know how to talk with her about these things, partially because he's uncomfortable with 
the circumstance in its entirety, you know? And then it's just brought clearly to us, this is not the wedding that Elliot would want to have. He loves the food that Josh made Mm -hmm. for him to try. You see the expression on his face and you know that this is 100% what he would go with if this was his wedding. Yeah. But it's not really. It's it's Hillary's wedding. And he's trying to make it diplomatic. And, yeah, doesn't want to make people feel like he's just looking down on them and their food and their culture and their way of doing things. And I think it's particularly poignant because Elliot grew up in Indiana. Yeah. And the show, when it was first filmed, I think would have been 2015. 2015 is the Supreme Court decision legalizing Hmm. same-sex marriage. And I don't know exactly when this show is supposed to take place time-wise. I think that they did mention 2016 and something. So, like, this would be a very recent thing where Elliot could have moved to California or New York or, you know, someplace that it was legalized and gotten married there. But he still grew up without that probably being a real possibility in in his mind. You know, maybe he hoped for, but didn't necessarily think would happen. Mm -hmm. And then maybe it's something he could have thought about with Mike, since he seemed like he was super engaged and fell pretty hard for Mike. And then, you know, that was all manipulation and strategic using him and a lie. And then he's just thrust into a marriage Mm -hmm. that he doesn't want to be in. And now he's going to make his final marriage choice (laughs) to stop a war. Yet again, this is not the wedding he wants, the marriage he wants if he had all the choice in the world or in the universe, (laughs) but he doesn't. And I think that that must be sad, you know? And so maybe he would rather just go full into the stress of trying to have everything perfect or have at least that part perfect because he can't have what he would want most, which would probably be like a genuine relationship with someone, a wedding filled with people he knows rather than dignitaries, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, something that he's actually excited about uh, rather than, well, this is better. At least this is a man. At least this is someone I am attracted to. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about how that, that all must just be really emotionally difficult. And then in the midst of that, finding out about the assassination attempt or the Mm. planning of another assassination on his life. Just like the time that he spent with Baylor, these many, many months, if not a year, you know, who knows how long it's been. It just hasn't changed anything. And Baylor's still trying to plot to get him killed. Mm -hmm. That's even after Elliot pardoned his life it's after months of conversations it's after board games together and in you know in some ways probably what he thought was a growing friendship like he confides in Baylor in some ways about I've done all of this and they still hate me and you know and and so 
maybe it was someone that he would consider in Fillory that he could actually have somewhat of a friendship with. And then he finds out, oh, and he's still trying to get me killed. Yeah. Betrayal. Betrayal. <laughs> if, if you didn't listen to our Hunger Games read through, you won't know what we're saying. But if you did, you'll know. Yes. And, and uh, you, you should. should. Yeah. Back and listen to it anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was just thinking of how disheartening it must be. Like, after going against people's advice and trying to do the morally right thing. I was just imagining him feeling really, you know, using maybe negative self-talk towards himself, like thinking that he was stupid, Mm -hmm. naive, and just feeling defeated and manipulated and angry. Uh, He was just had this really traumatic thing happen by being manipulated by Martin through Mm -hmm. Mike and... So in all of that mess of emotion, being like, fine, let's just execute them because all of the effort that I've put in, everything I've tried to do, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And it doesn't work. Yeah. Just feeling defeated. Yeah, absolutely. I feel so much for Elliot in this episode and, and just generally, of course, because, you know, as as you mentioned, I mean, he, he had to leave his home where he was growing up. And he ended up creating a kind of mysterious past (laughs) for himself because he was born in a place that because of no choice, no fault of his own, nothing that he chose to do, he was seen as wrong, as different. Mm -hmm. And now he's in Fillory where he was magically chosen as High King Mm -hmm. and didn't choose to be an earthling, you know, this is just something that's a part of who he is. And even though he's trying to do what's right, he's still being seen as wrong and different. Yeah, I can just imagine how how upsetting that would be and how it feels like you can't overcome these prejudices against someone just because people see them as different. Mm -hmm. And that he can try all he wants to do right by everyone and it will still end up as it was when he was young and the life that he fled. And that, that's just so, so sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Poor Elliot. <laughs> Poor Elliot indeed. And so, yeah, I really think all of this stuff is going on with him and, and I wish that they would highlight that a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, because... Yeah, this is serious stuff, and this is him still struggling, and him understandably feeling just so many negative things. And the only friend he has support from is Marco. Now, yeah, you could see the hurt in him when Quentin says that he needs to go, Mm -hmm. and him just being like, really, you can't stay for me? No one else is doing anything for me. I'm doing this for everyone. Like, I just want you to be here for me in this really hard time. And Quentin doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Elliot. We love you. We do. (laughs) What about you? Whose perspective are you thinking about? I'm thinking about Julia's. Because, Mm -hmm. in large part, because in this episode, we really start to 
learn more about what Julia is thinking and what she is feeling in mm-hmm. a way that we haven't in the last couple episodes where we've seen her act, we've seen her be different, but we haven't really seen a lot of introspection coming out of her outside yeah. of, I feel free, I feel better. Mm-hmm. Um and it's so important that we have it, too, because we didn't really get that with Martin. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I find this particularly interesting because we, we see her, you know, we like we talked about before, talking about what she should feel, but she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like, she should feel terrible about what she did to Quentin, but she just thinks it's terrible. She doesn't actually feel that it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And she's grappling with this. And, and, you know, I think this connects to our previous discussion about how the show is doing a great job of having consequences for actions. Because you would think, maybe plot-wise, that's not the case. Because this episode opens with her being released from the prison that she (laughs) was put in at the end of last episode. That's not a long-term consequence for her. But the consequence of her being imprisoned is this entire change in her the way that she's engaging with herself because when she was talking to katie at the end of the last episode she was rageful she was Mm -hmm. you know completely self-satisfied she didn't feel any shame or guilt or issue with the way that she'd been behaving Mm -hmm. and so even though sure we we open on the end of her situation there it's clear that over that time which has only been a couple days she has changed her perspective deeply Mm -hmm. and so yeah i think it's great that katie's choice to finally hold her accountable for her actions does have meaningful consequence for julia Mm -hmm. because she even tells fog like why should are you sure you should be letting me go i'm dangerous and then when quentin visits her she slams the door in his face like no don't get near me yeah. I could hurt someone. <laughs> exactly. And in particular, I, I love the line that she says where she never stopped to ask if she was doing the right thing. And now it's all that she asks. Mm-hmm. And I think that this really highlights the like deep down goodness of Julia, which is that Julia is always thinking about, you know, we learned about how, yeah, she's a metamagician. She, her, you know, she's about knowledge. She's about searching for knowledge and truth. And Mm -hmm. so despite the fact that she does not necessarily feel that wrongness in some of her actions, she can still come to a logical conclusion that Mm -hmm. what she's doing is wrong. And then she responds to that. She doesn't just get drunk for three months, (laughs) you know, she starts to question everything about what, you know, is what I'm doing wrong? And she uses Quentin as, as a way of helping her do that, right? If 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 I did this, would Quentin look at me like I'm evil? Mm-hmm. And Which I'm like, it'd probably be better to choose a different person, but I get that it's like your oldest friend. Exactly. It's like that's the person, person you know the best. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's it's really, really illuminating to see this Julia describe what she's going through explain she went from being totally sure of herself to completely unsure of herself mm-hmm. and she's just doing her best to navigate a life her relationships doing what's right when she can't trust herself frankly i resonate with that in some ways because 
I sometimes look back at myself growing up and my self-assuredness <laughs> in I was always doing the right thing. And now I very often am like, am I ever doing the right thing? You know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I I appreciate that about Julia here. I think it's really, really admirable seeing her engage with this this deeply and affected this deeply. Mm -hmm. um, I love the way that the episode ends with her saying she doesn't know what to say to make Quentin feel better, mm -hmm. but she also knows that dragons will make him feel better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, I think that that's a great example of her trying to deal with this, where she, she doesn't know how to help him. You know, she, she's cut off from her emotions in a way that makes that difficult for her. But she I also... mean, it would be difficult regardless, of course, right? Of it's course. like you just saw a different version of this person that you love that died. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think that this is tied into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it makes it even more exactly. difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she also knows Quentin well enough that she can anticipate his reaction to this knowledge mm -hmm. and how that's connected to, yeah, this thing that they both loved and the magic they both love now. And, and yeah, I just, uh, I really appreciate seeing more of Julia here and I'm really loving her interactions, uh, in this episode. And, and I'm really excited to see more of her moving on. Yeah. I mean, maybe he wouldn't agree with the, the Tolkien quote about like, there simply isn't an adventure worth telling if, if there aren't any dragons in it or, mm. or whatever it is. But I'm sure he would have heard of the quote. And so even if he's not like super into dragons, it's like, but dragons. Yes. <laughs> now, now you're suddenly, once you know that they're real, you know? Absolutely. Yes. I, I, I can remember multiple things in my life that just finding out there's dragons in it, I was like, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it was like Skyrim, a video game that, for the first time had you had dragons feature very prominently sometimes it was not like reign of fire which was a movie with christian bale where people thought dragons with helicopters and i thought <laughs> that was going to be awesome and it wasn't unfortunately oh if i had just heard that <laughs> i would have been like that's going to be terrible <laughs> but yeah i think i think julia's story here is great and interesting and important and I, I love the when she says that she doesn't feel any of it anymore, but she's doing it from memory. Mm. Okay, so I'm not sure if the show is trying to bring any parallels to something like antisocial personality disorder, mm -hmm. um, which colloquially people will talk about being sociopathic. But I, I see some, you know, I don't, I'm a, oh, an expert in that in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't done a lot of study or anything. You've just um, watched a, criminal, a lot of criminal minds. <laughs> I'm just, well, I mean, okay. Part of why, if this is alluding to that in any way, or if people are making connections there, I appreciate it is because so often whenever we see sociopathic characters, they're the villains. Yeah. And that's just not going to be accurate. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not like all sociopathic people are going to be terrible doing villainous things. Totally. And uh, one of my exes was a psychologist, and I can't remember if it was research 
that he had read or if he actually had a, a client who had an antisocial personality disorder. But I remember him talking about some people, maybe they don't feel remorse through empathy in the same way that many others do, but still they don't want people to be hurt through their actions. And so they go to therapy to try to learn other ways of doing things or, or maybe certain changes or they can make or maybe other ways to understand something so that they don't do that. And that is so rarely portrayed, uh, which I think is also really problematic for mm -hmm. anybody with APD to only see someone represented as a villain who's murdering people or this or that not see a character like Julia who doesn't want to cause any harm. Yeah. Still cares about the important things that she cared about, getting rid of the universal problem of a rapist monster, right? So, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Also, uh, another show that I appreciate is The Politician mm. with Ben Platt because... I think that it very much deals with him as the protagonist. Maybe, you know, they don't mention a diagnosis specifically, but him wanting to do the right thing, like wanting to fight against climate change, wanting to, you know, do different things, mm -hmm. not always feeling the same way other people do about it. And so struggling with using maybe unethical methods for getting stuff done but still like caring and fighting for the issues mm -hmm. uh so yeah I, I just think it's really nice to see her not just become how martin was even though martin was still complicated and, mm -hmm. and nuanced but it's nice to see that people's personalities are different and people's experiences are different. And so just not having a shade is not going to mean that everyone acts the same because now they don't have a mm. shade. They are going to be unique. They are going to make different choices from each other. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as I think has been an ongoing thing for me in this podcast, Julia is just such a compelling character and such a delight to, to watch and to see as a, a narrative agent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just, it's so nice to see her, like, fighting so hard to do the right thing when other characters are not dealing with the same issues that she is, and they just don't have any of the same commitment or care to, to do the right thing in totally. the way that she does. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, yeah, why Julia's one of my favorite characters, for sure. Yeah. All right, well, why don't we get into our last segment where we revisit the title of the episode. So this is The Girl Who Told Time. What are your thoughts on that title? You know, I'm not totally sure. Like, I think it's a cool title. I think it is a little confusing, though, because it's like, well, who's the girl? You know, because it starts with Julia, but then the actual kind of time travel-ishness, dimension travel that they do is with Alice, and so it's like who's the girl? Yeah, I don't like it because yeah. of that. Yeah, like, I think that this would have 
been a great title for episode a while away. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was just seeing this title coming up, I expected Jane to come back. Yeah, exactly. You, you would think it would be a little more the person who does time magic. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Maybe there's another level where it's like Julia is the girl who told time because like time doesn't have as much control over her as it does other people maybe like she is the only one in these time loops that had some memory i mean of the main cast that had like some memory of break bills being a place even Mm. though her memory was wiped and so it could be part of that that she stands outside of that a bit that she tells time who she wants to be or who she is rather than time telling her i I, i'm not sure so it's a cool title but the fact that we are having to dive this deeply to try to make it make sense shows that i don't think it it works Yeah, yeah yeah Okay, well, that will wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? We are going to be on Season 2, Episode 11, The Rattening. Oh, that sounds delightful. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. Find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll head on over to Patreon, see if you'd be interested in supporting the show, helping us keep this sustainable, and adding yourself to our community. Yeah, on the on October 7th, we're going to meet up to discuss season two so far of The Magicians and meet afterwards for our book club, which the chapter is going to be on J.K. Rowling in the in the Monsters book, which is going to be yeah, a really interesting conversation. And, and we've loved all of our discussions this far. So certainly we also want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out. out.